Welcome to the March 31st episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's reading uh, finds us back in the New Testament again, so the reading is Judges chapter 11 and 12 and Luke chapter 6. Once again, that's Judges 11 and 12 and Luke chapter 6. Uh, If you've not read these passages yet, uh, you know what to do. Hit pause, go back, read God's Word for yourself, and then come and listen to, to what I've got to say. But if you've already read them, let's get started. Okay, Judges 11. Um, Let me read to you the first two verses. It kind of gets this started. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite, um, who he was was the um, son of Gilead, was a valiant warrior. So this is talking about something in the future. But he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons... So this is, you know, the fact that he's a valiant warrior, that's something that happened later on, but the writer of Judges takes us back to um, the the time when Gilead was, you know, being born. Verse 2, Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. Okay, so you've got a a, a man who was, uh, was born... Um, through circumstances he had zero control over. He had no control over the fact that his dad uh, went to a prostitute when he had a wife, and um, there are no such things as illegitimate children, only illegitimate parents. And even then, they can be forgiven if they seek the Lord's forgiveness, but there is no forgiveness to be sought for children born in situations like this. Um but we understand how the brothers, as they saw him as the, the product of a prostitute, that they would have thought less of him. And we can understand how some people would do that when he had zero control over this. I'm telling you, a lot of kids are brought into circumstances that they had zero control over, and they're left to reap the, the consequences of it. Well, if they are not loved through that, if there is not grace that is extended, then it ought not be a surprise whenever they begin to mingle with worthless people. Like we read about Jephthah in verse 4, they start mingling with the wrong crowd because they're getting the clear message that they don't belong, that they're not a person of value. And so Jephthah uh, probably was somebody that just you know grew up on the wrong side of the the tracks and somebody that just because he was so mistreated and it was so unjust maybe he got just calloused with life and maybe he wasn't as afraid to die as maybe other people would be um, because he was just so frustrated and uh, so he became a valiant warrior he wasn't afraid to go out and fight people and he typically you know was able to win um So whenever the Israelites were looking for a leader to lead against the Ammonites, they came to Jephthah and said, will you lead us? And he said, what? You ran me off one time. Why would you even do this? And they asked him, will you please lead us? And so he agrees to lead. Well, what we read in verses 12 through 28 is that Jephthah 
uh, rallies an army against the Ammonite, uh, Ammonites, but he doesn't just go and attack. He wants to know what's the real deal here. Is there something that can be talked out or does this require a battle? And so he sent some messengers to the Ammonites to find out why the Ammonites were wanting to fight. The Ammonites said, well, because some of the Israelites are on our ancient territory and we want our territory back. Well, Jephthah was someone, apparently, even though he grew up on the bad side of town, rough side of town, because, you know, of how he was mistreated and run out of his home by his brothers, at least he went to school because he knew his history. And so he he gave a history lesson to the Ammonites and uh, said, nope, actually we gained it rightfully because under Moses... Uh, there were there was no attacking of anybody until we got to the promised land. Uh, whenever we were told by the Edomites and the Moabites that we were not welcome in their territory, we chose to go around. We did not force our way through with anybody. We did not want to engage anybody in battle. But King Sihon, uh, the Ammonite, did come out against. Moses and so Moses had to you know kick some Ammonite booty and whenever he did that they took the land they did not initiate the fight against the Ammonites the Ammonites initiated the fight they went against Israel Israel simply uh, engaged in warfare because they had no choice the battle was brought to them therefore they took what they won as a result of that battle and so the Ammonites still wanted the territory back. Jephthah said, you're not getting it. And so Jephthah led the people of Israel against the Ammonites. Um, well, what we read, and, and this is something I referenced uh, tonight, and this is I'm recording this on Wednesday night, something I recorded tonight uh, in church is that, uh, you know, one of the stories that I just most despise in the book of Judges is in today's podcast. And actually, it's this section right here in verses 29 through 40, uh, when Jephthah is leading the Israelites against the Ammonites to defeat them. And Jephthah makes a vow. He makes a reckless vow. And he's offering up a prayer. It's really a bargain with the Lord. And this is what he says. And Judges chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, he's talking to the Lord, this is a prayer. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. What kind of prayer is that? I mean, did he have some servant, some slave he didn't like, and so he was going to blame it on the Lord when he sacrificed that person? This was completely bizarre. Heaven is completely silent on this. Once again, I want you to realize that when we're reading narratives in Scripture, the Scripture is inerrant in that it tells us like it happened. It tells us exactly as it happened. But oftentimes, the Scripture does not give... uh, an objective assessment of the morality of an action. The scripture doesn't tell us that this prayer was right or this prayer was wrong. Notably absent was heaven's response to this, but he offers up a prayer. It's a bargain with heaven, and uh, you know the Lord is completely silent. I will. I would would go down uh, with uh, betting every single dollar uh, that I've got in the bank, which isn't that much right now. Uh, would uh, that 
that that if the Lord were to be actually petitioned regarding the merits of this prayer, the morality of this prayer, the Lord would absolutely condemn this prayer. Um, but the story says that Jephthah prayed this, and so he wanted to abide by what he had prayed. And so in verses 32 and 33, Jephthah soundly defeated the Ammonites. And in verses 34 and 35, it says, When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, so this is after he won the battle, so he's waiting, who's going to come out the door? Who's going to come out my door that I'm going to sacrifice? When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Everything in me wants to reach through the pages of Scripture and punch him in the nose or give him a Will, a Will Smith slap on the, on the cheek. Um, this is so bizarre. The Lord did not affirm this. He offered up a bizarre prayer, and now he's going to take supposedly the moral high ground and sacrifice her even though it was his innocent daughter. Some commentators believe, and they teach, that what actually happened was that his daughter was just confined to uh, virginity for the rest of her life, that she was not able to marry. And this is the way that she was able to satisfy Jephthah's moral high ground. I'm using that with scare quotes uh, regarding his prayer. But Judges 11.39 says at the end of two months, this is after she went around mourning you know, for the fact that she did not have any children. At the end of two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. And he kept the vow. What was the vow? He said he was going to sacrifice whatever came out the door. Th this is bizarre. This is so evil on every level. Uh, a man who is supposedly going to take the moral high ground, but is taking the moral high ground based upon a bizarre, evil uh, prayer and uh, it's just, I mean, it's just everything in me wants to say, sacrifice yourself, you know? What, why would you do this to somebody else? So anyway, uh, just seeing a, a father um, having a, a love for his daughter, his only daughter, and yet he's claiming to take the moral high ground by holding to a prayer that should never have been prayed in the first place. Anyway, that's... One of the stories that really gets my blood pressure up uh, because it's just part of the craziness that happens in the book of Judges when every man does that which was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 12. Um, the big theme in this chapter is the first seven verses, the first half. The second half of it, verses 8 through 15, is, is just a recounting of three judges, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. It's just a recounting very briefly, very undetailed account of, of three judges. But uh, in verses 1 through 7, we read about yet another conflict with the tribe of Ephraim. In Judges chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, The men of Ephraim were called together and crossed the Jordan to Zephon. They said to Jephthah, Why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house with you in it. Oh, my goodness. 
These guys are nothing but bullies and pests. They did this to Gideon too, remember? They did this to Gideon as well. Why didn't you, you know, when Gideon was told by God to whittle his army down to 300, um, they, the, the Ephraimites came against him and said, why didn't you call us to help you? And then whenever he and the 300 men went after uh, the enemy, the Ephraimites didn't go. They just wanted to gripe and complain, just wanted to gripe and complain. And here they're doing it again to another guy. This time it's not Gideon, this time it's Jephthah. And they said, why have you crossed over? over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go with you. They want to be involved in everything. They want to be involved in everything. They want power. They want glory. They want to be involved in everything. If you look at the way that the uh, the territory is divided up, the, uh, the territories of the 12 tribes, Ephraim doesn't even touch the Jordan River. You know, it touches the Mediterranean Sea, the tribe of Ephraim, but it doesn't even touch the Jordan River. And so where they were fighting, uh, where Jephthah was fighting the Ammonites, they're not even bordering Ephraimite territory. Ephraimites, they're just bullies. They're just people that are just pests. And uh, they just want to be involved in everything, or at least appear to want to be involved in everything. And I'm telling you that, uh, once again, just speaking pastorally, uh, there is usually at least one of these people in every church. There's usually at least one of these people in every church. They want to be involved in everything. And a lot of times people in the church notice that, wow, they're involved in everything. Wow, aren't they special? Aren't they holy? You know, wow, where do they find time to do all this stuff? Boy, if, if they ever move their membership or something happens, this church will crumble because of all that they're doing. Yeah, there, there may be a, a, another reason for why they're doing what they're doing. It's because they want to be involved in everything because they want power and they want the glory and they want the pats on the back and everything else. It reminds me of 3 John verse 9 where John is writing and he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he's doing, slandering us with malicious words. And so John is writing to a church and saying, there is a guy, his name is Diotrephes, and he loves to have first place among them. And he's even kind of slandering us, right? It's, it's, it's a power struggle. And I'm telling you, many times, many times within a congregation, and be very cautious in your churches. I know there are many churches that listen to this, many people in different churches. Be very cautious. And if you're in ministry, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that uh, that there are people, uh, maybe even in your church right now, or maybe, it, maybe it's just an individual or two, but they love to be involved. They love to be in leadership. They love to be in a lot of different leadership positions just because they love the clout. They love the power. And if they're savvy, they'll try to kind of move and shift the power over to them and away from you, you know, as the power pastor or whatever. It's like the Ephraimites. And uh, don't be like the Ephraimites. And uh, if you're someone that's not in ministry, which I would assume most of you are not, then, uh, then I would just encourage you that if, if you see some of this going on, that there's, there's one person that's really kind of, they always tend to migrate to the leadership positions. More and more leaderships, anytime a ministry starts up, they're on that. They're doing this. 
there's the tendency within a church to celebrate that because, wow, they're just so busy and they must love this church. But it very well could be that they're like the Ephraimites and they just love the power and the glory. And, uh, and they're a thorn in the flesh to the pastor who sees through this and realizes that, uh, that they're trying to pull some of his clout away so that he's not able actually to be the shepherd of the congregation. Uh, all I see is as I read through, and of course, as I read uh, scripture, I see it through the eyes of a pastor, and sometimes these themes kind of come up. I just like sharing those with y'all because uh, I want y'all, whether you're a pastor or a minister or just someone that loves your church and you serve there in your church, that when you see individuals like this, please understand that your pastor may be seeing this very differently than everybody else in the church is, and so just pray for them. Pray for them and support them. Luke 6. In verses 1 through 11, we see that uh, Jesus loved doing things on the Sabbath. It's almost like he waited until the Sabbath. He waited until Saturday uh, to do some special things because it's as if he knew it was going to really upset the Pharisees. When you begin in verse 1, I mean, it's just a picturesque scene. It paints an enjoyable picture of the disciples walking with Jesus, just enjoying being outside, and they're going through a grain field, and they're picking the heads of grain, and they're eating the grain. Just, and it's, just it's an enjoyable day, an enjoyable day. And leave it to the Pharisees to destroy the moment. <laughs> Leave it to them to destroy the moment. And they bring up the question of the violation of the Sabbath. Why are you violating the Sabbath? Um, I just want you to know that if we follow Jesus, we're going to enjoy life a lot more than if we follow a legalist who is just always, it's about the law, law, law. It's always about the rules, rules, rules. Um, man, Jesus wants us to follow him and to enjoy him and to enjoy him. I've talked about this before, but uh, but in this, when Jesus is talking about the Sabbath and walking on the Sabbath and gathering the grain and, and eating the grain on the Sabbath, uh, was it a violation of the Sabbath for them to enjoy the day that God had made for them and for Jesus to teach them and just to have a good time? Was it a, was it a sin? What Jesus does is he refers in this text in verses 1 through 11, he refers to David eating the forbidden bread, the bread of the presence that was in the tabernacle. And if you're taking notes, it's in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And what Jesus says is, have you not read that David, whenever um, he was... Um, hungry went to the tabernacle and he ate the bread that he was not for he was forbidden to eat he was not allowed to eat did you, have you read that and and so what Jesus was saying was is it was wrong and it was against the law of Moses for anyone other than the priests to eat that bread but yet David and his men were starving and so of course they could have the bread. This is the nature of the law. The law is given for our good, but in times of human needs, certain laws can be temporarily um, temporarily lifted or suspended. Um, 
the Pharisees, nope, the laws obeyed every time, all the time. There's never any exceptions. And Jesus is saying, come on. And so that's what he's doing whenever he mentions David eating the forbidden bread. It was unlawful for David to eat that bread, but yet David was hungry. And of course, it's okay to give him the bread to eat, even though ordinarily it would absolutely be wrong for anybody to eat that. This just demonstrates that God gave us the laws for our good for our good, um, and not to be a burden around our neck. Then in verse 6, on another Sabbath, and so, you know, we just have two Sabbaths back to back, and Jesus showed up in a meeting and uh, in, in a synagogue, and there was a man with a shriveled hand there, and the Pharisees were just watching. They weren't watching the preacher. Well, there wasn't a preacher in there, but they weren't watching the one who was speaking. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man and because they were so angry. You cannot work on the Sabbath. They didn't care a rip about the man's hand. They didn't care about him. They just cared about the law. Friends, I'm telling you, God doesn't see things this way. He's given the law for our good, but, uh, but he loves us. And so Jesus, who shows us what the Father is like, because he is God, in verses 9 through 11, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful for, to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Well, Jesus is giving them an, a, rhetorical answer, a rhetorical question. Everybody knows, well, of course you do good on the Sabbath. Well, they wouldn't answer. After looking around at them, he told him, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. So Jesus didn't touch his hand. Jesus didn't say, you're healed. Jesus didn't do anything. He just said, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand was healed. They, however, verse 11, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why were they filled with rage? Because in their minds, they knew Jesus healed this man, and they were so angry about it. Even though Jesus didn't proclaim the words of healing, Jesus didn't touch him, they knew Jesus healed this man. They, could, they were so blind with hate and such legalists that they didn't care for the man who was hurting, and they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was a miracle worker that probably was the Messiah. He was, well, you and I know he was, but in their minds, they should have been thinking he probably is, but they wouldn't do it because they were so dead set on just the law. Friends, I'm telling you, there was a time in my life for years that I sat under law preaching, law preaching. Um, we heard about a relationship with God, but there was, I, I never understood it. Never understood it. I, I know that I was saved at the age of eight, but uh, never understood this relationship with the Lord and the joy of spending time with the Lord in prayer and in submission to him and in time in his word, listening to what he would say to me. Um, all I knew was law, law, law. And I'm telling you, it was so, it sapped the life out of me. And I didn't realize that, that that's not the way it was supposed to be until there was a, a time in my life when God began to open my eyes to grace and I began reading some, some books by Christian men who uh, spoke to 
the joy that we are to have in the Lord in a relationship. I'm telling you, friends, if you have if if you are law oriented like the Pharisees, there is joy that you could experience that you don't yet have. Um, I just want you to see Jesus is filled with joy and he wants people to have joy and happiness. Uh, the law is intended for our good, to bless us, to be a benefit to us. Okay, so let's pick up the pace again. Verses 12 through 16, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Notice that he went up on the mountain, spent all night in prayer to God before he called the 12. Um, Peter, James, John, Andrew, the rest of them, all of them were, were hit within his disciples. They were within the big group that was following him. But this is when he called out of that big group, he called the 12 who would follow him. Verses 17 through 19, Jesus is teaching and healing, telling people how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, telling people how to have a an enjoyable relationship with the Lord, to enjoy him, to love him. Um, and he was healing them. He was fixing them. All of this is just a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like whenever we are sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying him, speaking truth to us. And there's no need for healing anymore because everyone is fully whole. In verses 20 through 23, it's, uh, you know, at the top of the section in my Bible, it says the Beatitudes. Well, as you read through verses 20 through 23, this is not the same set of Beatitudes that we read in Matthew chapter 5. And some, you know, may be tempted to say, oh, did Luke mess up or did Matthew mess up? Because the assumption is, is these are the same Beatitudes, but I don't think they are. I think... Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all pulled from just a wealth of teaching and healing and everything else that Jesus did um, to write their own individual books. But John himself said at the end of his gospel that if everything Jesus said and did were to be recorded, the world itself could not contain the books. And so there was just an enormous amount of stuff that Jesus did during those three years. I believe that Jesus gave the Beatitudes or Beatitudes um, on many more than just one occasion. And so when Matthew quoted uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 8, is it? Um, I believe that that was a different lesson. That was a different message than what Luke is recording. Luke records some different Beatitudes. I think it's because it was a different time uh, that uh, Luke was reciting from or recording from. Uh, in verses 24 through 26, uh, we have woe to the self-satisfied. Now, I do want to read this because some may misunderstand it. Luke chapter 6, verses 24 to 27, um, actually to 26, says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. But woe to you who are full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. And so what, what is Jesus saying here? Was Jesus saying that bad things, woes, are going to happen to those who are rich, full, laughing, and uh, those that people are saying uh, speaking well of? Is he saying that if, if you are rich or if you are have a full stomach or, or you're laughing and enjoying your, the moment, that something bad is going to happen? No, I don't think that's the case. 
I think what Jesus is saying in these verses is he's given us general truths. He is saying that those who have life easy, those who are rich, those who are full, those who just are just enjoying life and they're laughing, and those that, uh, you know, they've got the, a following, so people are speaking well of them. If you fit within those categories, then you may not feel a need to follow after Jesus. Because why would you? You know, you've got, you've got uh, what, what it is that your heart is longing for. Your heart doesn't realize that there's something else, something infinitely better to be had. And so there's this tendency to not feel a need to follow after Jesus. And it's in that case that Jesus is saying, woe to them. There were rich people that gave their hearts to Jesus. There were people that uh, were that were eating and and uh, that that were following Jesus. In fact, um, Jesus and his apostles, his disciples, were called uh, winos or drunkards and uh, gluttons because they were just enjoying meals. They were just enjoying spending time together. Not that they got drunk, but in the King James, they they were even called wine bibbers. Um, and so it is possible, it's certainly possible for people that have life that's going okay for them to follow Jesus. But the point that Jesus is making is, is that those who have their, their needs and even many of their wants met in this life will have a tendency not to feel a need for Jesus. And in that case, he said that in a position where things are going well for you, that's actually dangerous because it may keep you from Jesus. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of people don't turn to the Lord until something goes wrong in their life and they realize their guilt, they realize their frailty, they realize their impotence, and then they're open to Jesus. Much truth is in what Jesus just said. In verses 27 through 36, uh, Jesus is talking about loving our enemies and praying for those who mistreat us and blessing those who curse us and if anyone hits us on the cheek to offer the other. I mean, Jesus just goes on and on and on about this whole thing. What, what's he doing? Is he, is he telling us to be pacifists? You know, you know what a pacifist is. A pacifist is someone who says that war and fighting, battles, they're never the answer. Everything should be achieved through peaceful uh, negotiations and peaceful talks, peaceful means. Uh, a pacifist refuses to, to even engage in self-protection. Is that what Jesus is telling us? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. In fact, he told the disciples before the night that he was betrayed even to take a sword with them. Uh, he said in Romans 13 through the Apostle Paul, I believe it's Romans, yes, it's Romans 13, that the government doesn't wield a sword in vain, right? The government is intended by God to be an avenger of evil, that if evil is done, then the government should take their figuratively speaking, sword and bring um, the consequences against those who would violate the laws. No, Christians are not pacifists. So what is Jesus saying here? Turn the other cheek and, you know, if your enemy takes your coat, give him your shirt also. What's he saying? I believe what he's doing is he's saying, okay, I, I've commanded you to love your enemies, but what does it look like to love your enemy in a way that it really, really, really gets their attention? Well, 
If they hit you on the cheek, let them have the other. I don't think this is something that we're commanded to do all of the time. I think this is a general principle, and it is certainly an outworking of what does it look like to love our enemies. We don't hit them back when they hit us. Um, that if they take something from us, our coat, then we're to give them our shirt too. You know, just do something to let them think about what just happened and, and to think, why would you do this to me? I did something mean to you and you're being kind back. Why? Why are you doing this? The, these are the actions that Jesus is calling us to do. He's not calling us to be pacifist. He is saying, use your positions and recognize your position as a follower of God to behave in such a way that you cause even those who mistreat you to wonder what is motivating you to treat them so kindly. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verse 33, it says, if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And so what Jesus is saying, behave in a way that sinners don't behave so that you catch their attention. That's what he's doing. Sometimes we give up our rights because the greater good is we want someone to see that Jesus makes a difference in the life of those he inhabits. In verses 37 through 40, uh, do not judge. Do not judge and you'll not be judged. And uh, so some people, I tell you, Christ, people that don't, lost people that don't know the Bible, they know this verse. They know Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And they even know the King James Version of it. <laughs> um, and uh, so what's this, is, what's this talking about? Are we never to, to make a judgment about people? No, that's not true. That's not true. Um, if you look at Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Well, just a few verses down from that, uh, we're told, don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, we're going to have to make a judgment as to who, who are the pigs in our life so that we don't cast our valuables, our pearls before them. So obviously, don't judge doesn't mean we're not to make an assessment of people. I believe what this command is, is not to have a critical spirit, not to have a critical spirit, not to be judgmental. This is not saying we can't make judgment calls because even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, judge, don't judge that you be not judged, but yet it also uh, calls us in there to, um, um, I'm trying to think of the, the passage. Oh yeah, it's Matthew chapter 7 verse 16 you'll recognize them by their fruit. You know, Jesus was talking about how can you tell false, false prophets? You'll recognize them by their fruit. He says it in verse 16. He says it in verse 20. He says it twice. You'll recognize them by their fruit. That means we can make judgments about people. We can observe how they're acting, what they're doing, and make a judgment call about them. What Jesus is saying in our text, though, when he says, do not judge and you will not be judged, is do not have a critical spirit. Do not be like the Pharisees who were always looking down their nose at other people. Don't you be like that. Don't you be like that. In fact, uh, it's in this text, just a few verses later in verse 42, uh, where Jesus has been saying, you know, uh, who are you, you know, if... 
if you're talking about somebody, the speck that's in somebody's eye, but you've got a beam in your own eye, who are you to do that? Then listen to what he says in verse 42. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying, it's okay to acknowledge that there are faults in other people, and even to help them remove those faults. But what he's saying is, get rid of your critical, proud, condescending attitude and realize you've probably got bigger problems than the person you're looking down on. Deal with your own problems, and then you will humbly be able to help others with their issues. So the command, do not judge and you will not be judged, is not a flat-out prohibition of making judgment calls. It is simply a call to not be critical, to not be judgmental all the time like the Pharisees. Uh, Verses 43 through 45, we see that a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. You know, this is just something Jesus was talking about, basically saying that, uh, you know, if If uh, we are genuine followers of the Lord, then we're going to produce righteousness. And if we're not followers of the Lord, then we're not going to produce righteousness. We're going to produce not necessarily evil, but we'll produce worldliness and uh, things that are not godly and holy. Uh, Verses 46 through 49, he ends it with the two foundations, much like Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 with the one who uh, built his house on a rock and the one that built his house on sand here in Luke it talks about one who builds his house on no foundation at all and uh, this is a picture of someone who is saved their life is on the foundation of Jesus and then they're building their house they're living their life they're producing godliness and uh, that shows that whenever the, the floodwaters come and threaten to take that house down, that house is going to stand because they are genuinely saved. They're going to survive the day of judgment. But someone who builds their life on the world, you know, builds their life on anything other than Jesus, the sand, no foundation at all. Well, they build their life, they build their house, but when the storm comes, when the floods come, that's the day of judgment, their house is not going to stand. That's talking about those who were lost, and they stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so everybody's building a house, it just has to do with what are you building your house on? What are you building your life on? And uh, the foundation that we are to build our life on is Jesus. Everything needs to be about Jesus. Not only that we are trusting in him to forgive us and save us, but we want to know him more every day. We want to read his word, not just to know facts about him, but so that we can know him and enjoy him. Friend, I just want to encourage you, build your life on Jesus. And uh, when you stand before him on the day of judgment, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to build our lives on you. Lord, there's so many distractions. There's so many things out there in the world. Um, So many things, not only out there, outside of our homes, at our workplaces and at uh, the 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 places that we go or school and or the the grocery stores or wherever else but lord there's also plenty of stuff to distract us on our phones and our TVs and our computers and everything else lord this just, it's like life is just so distracting 
Help us, Lord, to, as you in Luke chapter 6, went up on the mountain to be by yourself just to spend time in prayer with your Father. Help us to realize the value of solitude, the value of just spending time alone with, with you. Lord, help us to build our life on you so that when we stand before you on the day of judgment, we will hear you say, well done. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of another episode, and I just want y'all to know I had a conversation with somebody this evening at uh, church who said that it takes them 38 minutes to get to work, and I tried my best to get this uh, in 38 minutes, but I don't think I was able to. I haven't quite done all of the math, but I think it's going to be a little bit over, but I hope y'all really enjoy our time together, and I love the encouraging words that I hear from each of you as you share how the Lord is helping you to grow in your knowledge and enjoyment of God's Word and your application of it. So thank you so much for going on this journey with me. I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.